You're listening to Adaptal for Your Thoughts, a show where we speak to leaders across multiple industries to gather their views and advice on prominent themes and topics within the workplace. Kitsan, welcome to Single Steps. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us about the role of executive assessments and how organizations can use them. Um, for listeners, Kitsan is a guru in the talent assessment space. He's currently the country manager for PSI for Singapore and Malaysia. Uh, extensive experience in talent management, organizational development, worked across the region. Uh, I've had uh, the luxury of having worked with him for a good three years when I spent some time in Cubics. Uh, so Kitsan, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, but before I carry on, Kitsan, like, how are you? How are things on your side? I'm great, Annie, and thank you very much for having me on. Uh, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. Kitsan, I, I, I know you, you've, uh, you're probably working on multiple projects as we speak at this point, but I, I did really want to pick your brains on you know, the world of talent assessments and how organizations could really gain value from them, right? I guess the key question I wanted to start off with is, in your opinion, what role does talent assessments actually play in shaping you know, an organization's HR strategy? Uh, that is a good question, but I think that is also a very loaded question to answer. <laughs> so maybe um, let me take, take a step back very quickly to actually sure. how organizations, um, uh, organizational science evolve as a whole. So I think there, are, there were a few big paradigm shifts. So if yeah. you think about previously when everybody is just building their or, or tailors are making their own clothes in a little shop and all that, things were pretty simple. And then things with the Industrial Revolution gets a little bit uh, complex. That's when the first paradigm came in and and management sciences really evolved from trying to make things work when they got complex, right? So, so yeah. that the trains don't crash when they come to a station. And so, so, so this is where management sciences started coming in. And uh, the second paradigm is when the, uh, production increased. And mm. therefore, we have a second issue coming on, which is actually matching resources to actually production capacity. Okay. And, and when it comes to people, at that point of time, the paradigm was that people is just one of the resources, right? So, so basically, is what's the best way to actually utilize this resource for production capacity increase? Uh, the the third paradigm shift probably came about 50 years ago um, when people and people who actually study such things begin to realize that humans actually behave differently. Uh, right. Not everybody is alike, right? Some people work better in the morning, some people work better in the evening, some people work yeah. better when they talk to people, some people work better when they're dealing with stuff. So I think that's when uh, a lot of personality sciences get uh, applied in the organizational environment. And we begin yeah. to say, hey, uh, there are certain personalities that work well, there are certain attributes in people that actually work well. It, it wasn't perfect. So people tend to think of uh, these things as stable. Mm. If I'm an extroverted person, I'm constantly extroverted. Uh, I think over the last few decades, again, things begin to change. This is where we are now. Uh, this fourth paradigm is when we realize that actually personalities uh, affect attributes and behaviors. And these mm. things are also shaped by the environment. Yeah. So I may be very dominating. But mm. when I'm in an environment that I'm very, I'm feeling very insecure or I'm not comfortable with, I may suddenly climb up. Mm. So, so, I, so that's when we say that besides the fact that knowing 
a, a certain behaviors and personality that underlies certain behaviors, we also begin to understand that certain environments affect this and brings out certain things and suppresses certain things. And this is where we come in as uh, assessments, is that what assessors do, or what assessments and psychometrics do basically is helping organizations understand the environment that they operate in, and therefore what sort of uh, people uh, can actually thrive in those environments and what sort of people you should bring in and what sort of uh, matches you should have in a team for example so that the, the attributes actually build on each other and, and then where one plus one equals to three instead of one plus one equals to 1.5 so uh, that's a very sorry that's very a bit of a long-winded way of actually uh, describing how what assessments does we, we basically help people yeah. match talents and the attributes yeah. and underlying factors on these attributes to, um, to the environment and the environment both today as well as the environment tomorrow yeah. No, no, thanks a lot for giving me that context. I think it really makes uh, a lot of sense. And I guess it, it's fair, right? I mean, when you speak to any organization or a leader now, you're saying they're going through some form of transformation or the other, some kind of change or the other. But I guess what's really interesting is, like you said, there's a bunch of people working together, you know, executive leadership team working together uh, to bring to life some strategies, some organizational strategies, right? But it kind of always seems that, you know, there could be some friction, some tension because of different working styles and leadership styles of this particular team. So when you're, when you are trying to bring a strategy to life, how does understanding these individuals through some of these assessments really help in kind of, I would say, creating a cohesiveness within a team? Yes. And I think the, the thing with organizational sciences is that, uh, it is something that I think we debate a lot for practitioners is that there, there is the science going on its own little trajectory, slowly, yeah. happily humming along, and there is yeah. a practice, which is mm. what is happening in the real world, and it is, it is just rumbling along at the speed of light and sometimes just, just hitting the wall and bouncing it off. Very often, what is happening in the sciences don't necessarily get applied sufficiently. Mm. Uh, why I'm saying that, for example, is that there is some seminal works uh, in the last 10 years, for example. There is long-term work uh, in the last 10 years about what sort of personality traits uh, mm. among CEOs mm. is proven to drive organizational performance right. as measured in organizational revenue, growth, capital uh, appreciation, and so forth. Mm. And what sort of uh, personality traits of the top management team working with the CEO that has direct impact on both the organizational performance and the organizational engagement of its people. Right. So, but the question is, I mean, if, if you want to actually looking through research or doing your dissertation or studying for your master's or your PhD, you probably don't come across such things. And the question is, the science is out there. What the practitioners do in the marketplace nowadays are very much on the, the, the very fundamental things, which is based on the, the second piece that I talk about. For example, that we know for a fact that uh, general mental abilities is probably the single biggest, uh, has the single biggest impact on, the, uh, on, on career success. Okay. In short, uh, we find that people who score higher in general mental abilities tend mm -hmm. to get promotions more, tend to make more money, tend to uh, get them, be, also interestingly become more satisfied with their work over time. Right. And 
And we also know there are certain traits among people that make them successful. Um, that, I mean, if you think about it very simply, is a person, if a young person start at work, is intelligent, which is general matter mm. abilities, mm. and he's also very driven. Yeah. They are likely to be successful. You, you probably like working with somebody like that. They're, they're inquisitive, they're interested, they're energetic, and they're smart enough not to screw up. Right? We know for a fact certain things combine well to create success. Yeah. And I think the difficulty is not just that. The difficulty is also in application. Organizations tend to have moved on. And then, uh, for example, I think one of the biggest challenge that I have sometimes is when clients come to me and say, hey, I want to check, I, w- I want to test all my emerging talents for mm. potential. Sure. And the next thing they, they do is, okay, this is a set of leadership competencies we want them to exhibit. Yeah. And you look at that and say, okay, yes, this is a set of leadership competencies. When what we can access from a, from a, from an assessment point of view, a point of view is mm. what sort of attributes are likely to drive these kind of behaviors, yeah. or, or 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 develop these kind of behaviors, or acquire these kind of behaviors over time. Mm. But what drives and develops these kind of behaviors over time, which is matching your leadership behaviors, may not be what like the science tells us actually presents potential over time. So which one do you want? You want somebody to has a higher capacity to behave like what you think your leaders should be like in 10 years time, or you yeah. want somebody which the sciences tells us is going to be likely to be more successful in 10 years time. Mm. I think mm. this is where the, the, the conundrum is and the, the confusion is, is uh, the, the, where I say the, the organizations are bouncing off the walls and moving really fast and the sciences yeah. are coming along on these little tracks and they, they don't talk to each other enough. Yeah. And I think that's where we have a little bit of uh, a, a so-called uh, a disconnect between practitioners yeah. uh, and, and, and uh, the science and uh, the marketplace. Well, that's, it's quite a tricky situation to be in, right? Because the organization would say, we know that these behaviors would, these demonstrated leadership behaviors would equal successful performance per se, right? Because they would kind of understand the context of their organization and what's required. And then at the same point in time, I guess the science is also trying to figure out what is generic potential. Can I say that? You know, what is generic potential? So would it... Uh-huh. Yes really no. I think the, the difficulty is a lot of organizations don't actually know. I see. Okay. Right. So, so okay. it's I have a set of um, leadership values, right? I mean, this is what yeah. I, I I want my leaders to exhibit. But are these leadership values what actually brought you success over the last ten years? Are these the sure. same attributes that's going to bring you success in the next ten years? We don't actually know, sure. right? So yeah. it is an idealism versus yeah. a, a a historical thing. Like you say, it really depends on where the organization is at that point of time, right, in terms of its life cycle. For example, let's say, you know, you've got a, a, a an emerging organization that's looking to scale, so they kind of hire, you know, hungry, um, energetic, uh, results-focused business development folks to grow the organization. And once it gets to a certain structure, it has to maintain or kind of keep the, the, the relationships intact to kind of sustain organizational performance. So... Would, would you then kind of say that there's a shift that's happening there and, and talents or HR needs to ensure talents are able to mold to that shift? Is that, is that kind of what needs to happen? Thank you, Ani. I think that it is a spot on the description of what actually needs to happen. Is yeah. that we very often, uh, number one, have a, a unfounded and ungrounded uh, idealism about tomorrow. 
Yeah. Secondly, uh, we don't, uh, or we get so attached to the past. So what we thought brought us success previously, when we were a young company, uh, let's say a startup, when you're a young company, everybody everybody needs to be innovative, everybody needs to rock the boat. And then when yeah. we have uh, 20,000 people and everybody rocks the boat, the boat gets rocked till it's broken, <laughs> you know, they need yeah. more time. Yeah. So, so you do need to shift. So yeah. you, you can't be holding on to what brought you here yesterday. Uh, right. And you do need to have some sense of what is going to bring you to success tomorrow. And like you say, uh, understand that the role of HR very often is just three things, right? Uh, mm. you, you need to make sure that you have the right capacity to deliver on the promises tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, you, you are able to attract and uh, retain that kind of talent. And, uh, yeah. And, and you can maintain the, the kind of uh, capacity to, to, for manpower to actually uh, to get your daily work done, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess it's, uh, it's a difficult thing to execute, isn't it? Uh, especially when you've got different, I guess, pockets of the organization which are maybe sometimes stuck in the old ways and then pockets of the organization which are aspiring uh, for change and driving transformation. But I guess it's on, especially like, you know, in current situations where, you know, I guess a lot of it is uncertain, right? The economic outlook and how we're operating and, and to see if, you know, some of the new business models or the operating models we're working on uh, can even work uh, or, or even works. Um, how do you then create, like, or how do you then acquire that clarity of what tomorrow looks like? Um, what, is, there a, is there a specific process to it, uh, which you can, you know, in, in certain times like this? Firstly, I think that it's not new. Um, yeah. uh, setting charting forward path is something that yeah. just has been doing for donkey years. Yeah. And uh, um, they are paid pretty well for doing that. <laughs> so so, yeah. so I, yeah. I don't think that is rocket science. Yeah. Um, what, so, so what I meant was, like, you know, with the pandemic and things like that, uh, you know, currently that's changed quite a number of things. So, yeah. I think that I think there are two things that needs to be clarified in the process. Uh, number one yeah. is not just the what the future looks like, right? Yeah. What success looks like, what the future looks like, uh, what, and also a sense of who we are at the mm. very moment. Mm. Uh, if, for example, we we want our company to be this gung ho, exciting. Uh, boundaries challenging organization yeah. but who we are at the, at the very fundamental is also one that is uh, caring for each other that we mm-hmm. that, that we want to uh, our people to, to become the best that they are yeah and then putting in the kind of structure for it for example instead of having a six months reserves for payroll you might want to have a 24 months reserves because you might say that because we care for each other, we want to make sure that we don't we, we, we don't fire people when we cannot afford it. Right? Yeah. So I mean, it's it's a bit it's a bit uh, almost of a of a joke when people almost every organizations will, will, will tell you that uh, people are our biggest big people are our biggest asset. And what's the first thing they do when they are hit with a crisis is that they let people go. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's a little bit like saying that the ship keeps me afloat, but then the first thing when you hit with the waves is the abandoned ship, right? So it, it yeah. just doesn't make sense. So not just knowing where you're going, but also understanding fundamentally what it is. And yeah. and having clarity of that, to me, uh, yeah. I always find that important because that can actually help us manage the ambiguity and which is exactly what the world is coming to. Right? I mean, things we just don't know what's going to happen next. But knowing that 
for example, I will I will try as much as possible to keep yeah. my team members. And yeah. then knowing that I will try as much as possible to also help my community or whatever it is. So those yeah. values do help uh, anchor in times of uncertainty, even if the future is not very clear. So right. in times of growth, it is easy to lead with a, a future direction. In mm. times of uncertainty, sometimes the direction itself uh, keeps changing or we are not yeah. very sure that we can even be here in the next three months. So that those fundamental values become very important. Yeah. Oh, that's um, that's really quite a lot to think about. But you know, like in like you were saying, Ketan, in organizations, you know, like uh, as the organization grows, uh, I guess we also require different versions of the individual leaders as they grow with the organization as well to keep with the pace. Um, so when you are going through that, I guess that rounds, um, is there is is there a way that we can kind of you know, once we assess a particular candidate or a particular leader within an organization that we say these are the exact things we need to do to develop this person to become that future leader that the organization needs, um, what's the best way to kind of get that done? Uh, a simple answer is yes and yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes and yes, because yes, I think uh, we, we, the assessment will give us some kind of a picture. Or it's almost yeah. like taking a photo of a person today uh, from yeah. attributes and, and yeah. personality point of view. Yeah. And I think the second part is what you then need to do is to fit that, whether it's onboarding, the development, sure. based on the picture that you have, right? So, right. Uh, it's a little bit like saying that uh, if I know that you learn best by doing something, yeah. and the next thing I do is I put you into a seven-hour theoretical class. It just mm -hmm. doesn't work, right? So, so yeah. basically, it's knowing that you learn best in a certain way, knowing that you, ex you, are, you are best at certain things, and you are potentially not so good at certain things, then helping you close those gaps in a way that is most yeah. efficient and effective for you and most engaging for you will actually help yeah. you gain those uh, and close those gaps and gain those competencies in, in the shortest possible time and in the in the most engaging and sustainable way. Sure, sure. I, I guess I'm like, what if there is, you know, for example, there's there's this particular talent that, you know, really grow, uh, grown with the organization because of his or her ability to execute and deliver results. But then, you know, when it's kind of elevated to a leadership role, but unfortunately, maybe to the assessment does not demonstrate that leadership capability, um, is there a way one person can build that with time uh, or is it kind of like you have it or you don't? I think we are talking now in terms of competencies and uh, yeah. the, 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 the very uh, fundamental definition of competencies, uh, one of them is that uh, it, it has to be something that's learnable. Otherwise, it yeah. becomes, a, it becomes a, a, almost a a trait that you're born with, right? whether you are one point yeah. or you cannot do a reach, right? So, uh, and those things would probably disqualify you, yes, but yeah. then the, I think, but on the other hand, most competencies, uh, in fact, all competencies should be things that can be developed. Yeah. Uh, the question is, is developing those competencies the best way of accelerating the leadership growth of one individual versus the other? So right. uh, we tend sometimes to think that one size fits all. All everybody yeah. needs to learn how to do a certain thing, right? Mm -hmm. Therefore, all my leaders need to be able to do that. But what if you have one person who could 
will probably take three times as long to learn a particular skill because he or she is just so out of whack with that. Whereas he or she can probably do something else three times better than another person and yeah. need after time. Yeah. So I think that is also where understanding this can give us a sense of maybe we understand that it will take her three months as opposed mm. to, I mean, three years as opposed to one year to pick up this particular area. We can live with right. that. We will compensate yeah. by getting two other people to actually help uh, mm. do this stuff for her. Whereas she leverage on another skill that is she's, uh, she has almost superhuman abilities in and is able to do three times better than other people. Right. Got you, got you. Yeah, so I guess the assessments that way would really give the organizations a very good additional data point to look at how they can allocate their development efforts on different candidates and prioritize accordingly. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And I, and, and I also say that there's no bad candidates, right? So let's say in a hiring, yeah. for example, you, 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 you do an assessment of three. I mean, there's no bad candidates uh, yeah. sometimes, but it's, it's rarely that <laughs> so bad that, <laughs> that they're still able to, you, you, they are still able to be in the job market. So most of the time, there are no bad candidates. They are actually candidates who are better in a certain environment that is not yeah. as good as a certain environment. And then knowing what sort of environment and being very honest with yourself what sort of environment they'll be operating in and saying that, yeah. okay, even though this candidate A is probably better in terms of experience, but candidate B seems to be thriving in the kind of ambiguous environment that we operated in with no rules yeah. and no boundaries, much better than candidate A. And therefore, I'm taking candidate B, even though candidate B may not be as good as candidate A, but then he or she seems to be better, more ability to thrive in our kind of environment. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think at the end of the day, uh, like you say, there's a lot of good candidates and I guess maybe some bad candidates out there, but... Uh, it's really which candidates, the right candidates for my organization at this time, right? So uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but you know, when you're kind of, I guess when you're, when you're looking at candidates this way, um, sometimes uh, is it fair to say that organizations may have, I guess, too many asks in terms of a leader. For example, they have all of these leadership competencies and on top of that, they have that or you need to deal with uncertainty, you need to be able to make decisions in, in chaos and all sorts of things. Um, is that too much to ask or do you think, no, that, that's, that's a fair ask of, of, of organizational leaders at this point in time? I want to uh, reverse back to a statement you made right before this, right? So yeah. there are no good or bad candidates. It's more a, a what's the right candidate for your organization at this point of time. Yeah. So, so, and I think that this point of time is a very important one. So, uh, whether a leader should be an all-rounder or should be spectacular at one or two things and we can accept that they are really bad at the others, mm. depends very much on your growth phase and where you are. So, if you are a multinational with the uh, with the capacity to rotate a person and give exposure to everything, yeah, we do expect a, a leader to be a, a lot more round-rounded by then. Yeah. A, startup that has been around and, and growing organically like crazy for the last two, three, five years, right? So in the last five years, if you're a startup in Silicon Valley, you can accept that the person is really good at one or two things and um, yeah. not, as long as they are not like really, really bad at the three or four others, 
Yeah. Even if they are, if you know for a fact that it can be compensated, then you, you're probably saying that, okay, but that, that two things is more important. The ability to, for example, the ability to chart the future, the ability to pivot and build the technology, and the third ability to raise funds, right? So so, yeah. so you, you, there are many manner, many other abilities for leaders, which is like uh, the ability to engage people, the ability to, to, to manage the stakeholders and all that. But if they can do that three really well, and that is required for that phase of growth, yeah. I think that is sufficient. With the understanding that over time these requirements change, like you say, and then we, there yeah. will be time probably two, three years down the road, we say that uh, it's just like Google in the early years when, when, when they realized that hey, it's time for them to bring in uh, a head on Joe who has seen the world from some ecosystem to run the system. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think it's yeah, yeah. maybe two little kids, right? So, yeah. yeah, I think they're they are probably a good example of knowing when to step down and step off. Mm. And uh, I actually had the privilege to work with an organization um, a few years back. Uh, they were one of the largest e-retailers in the region. And, yeah. and I remember the CEO for Singapore telling me that uh, I've grown, I know how to grow an organization from zero to 100 million. But now if you ask me to grow an organization from 200 million to 2 billion, I think it is beyond me. And, and that's when he stepped down and he said that, okay, I, I'm probably better becoming the CTO because that's what I'm really good at, and then mm. get somebody else to become the CEO. And yeah. I think that kind of humility is mm. both admirable and rare. Because if yeah. you hit early success, especially in, in people when you hit early success, very often you think that you, you are immortal and you, you can take on the world. And very seldom right. you actually look in the mirror and say, hey, uh, maybe it's not for me, at least for now. I mean, I need to step aside. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, but like you say, those that kind of self awareness is, uh, like you say, it's rare to find. Uh, but I think the most important takeaway of this conversation for me, though, has been around how, uh, as the organization grows or is in different phases, it requires different versions of talents, and and at that point, or ourselves, uh, and at that point, it's really important to kind of make those decisions uh, and prioritize resources out uh, accordingly to support that growth. Um, but I guess Kitan, like in terms of like uh, parting knowledge you would you would give us is what is the advice you would give to organizations when implementing assessments? Uh, you know, for I know it is different for selection, development, and promotion, but in general, what's the advice you would give uh, when an organization is looking to kind of uh, onboard assessments into their talent strategy? I I would strongly suggest that. Um Organizations uh, have that soul searching before yeah. uh, you bring in an external person, whether it's a consultant or, or, or an assessor or whatever it is. Um, yeah. uh, that soul searching to understand what you're looking for. Yeah. And, uh, and how does this fit into your big manpower, people and culture strategy, right? So. Mm. Uh, once you know, for example, what we are going to do, for example, is to actually find uh, potential among mm. our gene talents. Talk to several people, uh, especially uh, people in maybe people you trust in other organizations who may have the same experience. Yeah. Uh, talk to some uh, external vendors and uh, about their experiences and how they help organizations. I think the, I think those conversations are critical because it is often not a cheap exercise. Yeah. And uh, very often it can 
somehow become a box ticking process. Mm. It is mm. like some organizations, yes, we believe in performance management, therefore we're going to have these seven processes and three forms of filling and everybody does it, right? Yeah. The question is, uh, do you do you, you do your reviews? Do how I mean, get some feedback on how effective it is. Are people doing horse trading in the process, and so that same mm. same with your assessments. I mean, get a sense of how all this fits into your whole strategy. Get a sense of who might be a, a, a good people to work with. Should you be working with a large firm because they have the capacity to run a large volume, or should you be working with a more niche firms who can actually handhold you? Uh, and actually, uh, actually give you a lot more uh, intimate uh, conversations and advice on how to go on. So, and then and then take your time in actually. Yeah. It is something that is critical. So, I, I, it's definitely not something you should rush into. It should definitely not be something that turns into a process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess the the, the main thing is to ensure it doesn't become a, a tick box exercise, isn't it? Because then you lose all the value that uh, you you can actually gain from these these assessments. And assessors, yeah. Um, Kitsan, listen, it's it's always a pleasure catching up with you, uh, and uh, I think uh, it's always nice because you kind of add a lot of information into every conversation. So thank you very much for sharing such wonderful insights. Um, I look forward to catching up with you in person again soon, sometime, hopefully. Yeah, I always look forward to catching up with you, Annie, and uh, it's always enjoyable talking to you. Thank you for listening. We hope this podcast can help in your learning journeys. Check us out on our LinkedIn page, Hatch Asia Consulting. Till next time, keep growing.